All right. Turn with me then. And we are in Matthew chapter 28 for the end of Matthew's gospel. However, I warn you, it won't be the end of the end in Matthew's gospel. I just couldn't finish. So I was writing the manuscript. So we are going to come back, Lord willing, next week and finish off uh, this final paragraph, this last charge, the very last words. And last words are, uh, they grab our attention, don't they? Because they can be quite memorable just for the fact that they are the very last words spoken, last words heard and exchanged. You might know this very personally. It might be true in the last time maybe you saw a good friend. What was the last thing you were able to say to one another? Or, or imagine the soldier that is speaking to his wife right before his deployment. Or I can reflect back and think on the interchange my dad and I had when he dropped me off at college. And those words that he said to me as I really stepped out on my own, at least in some measure. They're memorable. They're sometimes the last thing you hear. They stick in your mind. And of course, that can be particularly true for the very last words one might say, the last words of this life. Again, they capture our attention. Sometimes they can be funny. Sometimes even as a person approaches death, it will be rather ironic. This was true for one general, Union General John Sedgwick. He was chiding his troops for ducking at enemy fire, and he assured his troops, I'm ashamed of you. The enemy couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And then wouldn't you know, the enemy hit him. No elephant, but hit the general, and he died moments later. It's ironic. Those were his last words. Or more heroically, again, to venture back into American war history, Nathan Hale that revolutionary war spy, he was captured by the British, but he inspired the side with his last words before they executed him when he said famously, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Last words can stick with you. As you remember back on the person, you reflect on who they are and what they were and what they said, those last things can reside with you. They stick with you. They ring in your ears. And certainly, that is why, as Matthew is wrapping up his gospel, he gives us Jesus' words here at the end. He wants you to walk away from this whole picture of Jesus' death for your sin, burial, and resurrection with these last words ringing in your ears as the call and the commission that we, the church, are to be about until he comes back. In his last words... Jesus gives us His marching orders, and His task that He's commissioned us is this. See, He charges us. After He has left, He's left us here on earth, and He's given us a mission, a task to be about, and it is this, go to all the nations and make disciples. He's given you the marching orders, church, and here they are, go to all the nations and make disciples. This is your mission. And we're going to consider this morning three truths that will encourage us along in this mission, that we might go to all the nations and be faithful to this command and make disciples among them. And the first truth is this, is we need to realize the desire for the nations. That is, how God longs for the nations. He desires them to Himself. We see this as it opens, our text does, in verse 16. Of course, we're looking at what's called the Great Commission, this last call Jesus gives to the church. But to really come to grips with how great this commission is, that is in the eyes of God, you need to recognize the heart of God in it, namely His heart and longing 
for the nations. So we pick up our text in verse 16, and it reads this way. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, let me remind you where we've been and where we are now in Matthew's gospel. Of course, just over the last few weeks, we've been tracing how, of course, Jesus died for sin on the cross on Friday, and then He was quickly rushed into the tomb. And He remained there on Saturday until Sunday morning. That's what we saw last time that we were in Matthew's gospel. We saw the angel speaking to the Marys at the tomb, telling them, Jesus is not here. He's alive. He defeated death and sin. Such that they were commissioned to go tell the disciples that story, that Jesus is alive. And as we compare with the other gospels, we understand the ladies did go. They got to the disciples and they gave them that message. And from there, Peter and John, they go run over to the tomb to check it out themselves, though they did not yet see Jesus. The women seem to follow, tag along behind them. After the two disciples leave, Jesus then appears to those women. That's where we almost ended last time. And He then commissions the women once again, these first witnesses of the gospel, tells them, you need to go tell my disciples again, my brothers, that I've risen from the dead, and you see proof of it in me. But then too, you need to tell them to meet me in Galilee. Look at verse 10 of chapter 28. Then Jesus said to them, the women, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And then as we pick it up now in verse 16, there they are. The disciples are in Galilee. But understand between verses 15 and 16 in your Bible and Matthew, the other gospel writers recount a number of other events that took place. So verse 10 through verse 15, even of Matthew's gospel, everything's still taking place in Jerusalem. And other things take place in Jerusalem. Jesus first appeared to the women, but then he appears to the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. You remember that, Luke 24? That's still near the Jerusalem area. And then Jesus also appears to 10 of the original disciples. And then after that, he's going to appear to the 11 of the disciples, that is, doubting Thomas is now there. Of course, he then becomes believing Thomas as he sees the resurrected Jesus. And then, after these first few appearances in Jerusalem, finally things move north to Galilee, which is almost where we pick up in verse 16. But the first time the disciples encounter the risen Jesus up north in Galilee, if you recall from John's gospel, is actually once again to a familiar place where they were often with Jesus, but right on the Sea of Galilee, the lake there. Remember, Peter, apparently waiting around for Jesus, returns to fishing. Remember this? And he draws other disciples with him. But it's the same kind of story. He's on the Sea, trying to fish. What does he catch? Nothing. And then he sees Jesus on the shore, who directs them to make this gigantic catch. And then they bring it in, and they eat breakfast with him on the bank, seeing the resurrected Jesus, flesh and bone, face to face. Well, all of those events, the road to Emmaus, the appearing to the ten, to the eleven, the interchange on the Sea of Galilee, all of those take place between verses 15 and 16 in Matthew. But Matthew jumps now right north to Galilee, right where they will see Jesus, just as he directed them. And he directed them to a particular mountain, it says there in the end of verse 16. We don't know where that is, some great hill in Galilee to be sure, but we're not sure which one it was. But recall 
Jesus had been setting this up this whole time, that he would meet them in Galilee. So if you remember from Matthew 26, when he foretold that they would all desert him when he was struck down, he said, but I'm going to rise from the dead and I'll meet you in Galilee. And then when the two women saw the empty tomb and the angel told them, he's going to meet you in Galilee. And then we saw in verse 10 just a moment ago, they saw actually the women did the resurrected Jesus. And what was the message? Go tell my brothers that I'm going to Galilee to meet you there. So they were getting ready for this trip to Galilee. This is when they were going to be introduced to Jesus, resurrected in a particular call and way. Such that as they anticipated this coming to Galilee, it's likely that they invited others to join them, that they went to the other disciples, not just the it's not just the 11 anymore, but all of those early believers and was calling them, "Join us, let's go meet the resurrected Jesus. He's going to meet us up in Galilee." If you remember in Acts, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul speaks of a time when Jesus appeared to 400, excuse me, 500 people at once. It was very likely this moment in Galilee on the mountain. So you have the 11 here. You have probably many other disciples, early believers coming to this mountain too to meet Jesus. But why Galilee? What is all this about Galilee? It's so intentional by Jesus. He foretold it. The angel told them, and he told those ladies again to tell the disciples, why must he go to Galilee? And then to that question, why does Matthew end here? Why not catch them and commission them in the capital city where the temple is in Jerusalem? Why do it up north in Galilee? Well, to come to that answer, I think we just need to ask, well, what was Galilee? From the Old Testament perspective, Galilee was, you were on your way out of Israel at that point. You were getting out of town. You were getting out of the borders of the promised land. Remember in Isaiah chapter 9, it was dubbed the Galilee of the nations. What's going on here is that the epicenter and the focus of the kingdom of God is already shifting away from Jerusalem and getting ready to be launched out to the nations, out to Galilee, as Jesus then gives this great commission, make disciples of all the nations, you see. With his appearance in Galilee and this commission, Jesus is forecasting, my kingdom's going global, guys. We're going international. We're not going to stay in the borders of Israel. I am king of the nations, I'm king of the world, and I'm telling you, go to all the world. And so go, spread my message, spread my kingdom, preach the gospel that I will forgive anyone, Jew or Gentile, that comes to faith if they will just turn to me. And so you see what's happened is you've had this shift in the Israelite kingdom and way, which was a come and see kind of kingdom. Come and see how God works. See how we obey the law. See how we're different than the nations. That's not how the kingdom works anymore, and that's what Galilee's telling us. The kingdom is no longer come and see, but now it's a kingdom of go and tell. This kingdom can go anywhere. It's mobile, and it's going to go all over the world. It's a kingdom that does not merely invite in, but it goes out and seeks, just like our God came from heaven to seek and save sinners. The kingdom gets brought to them. They don't have to come to it anymore. And why is this? Why do we have this shift from come and see to go and tell? Why? Because God always has had a heart 
for the nations. To pursue the nations and calls the nations that have been so wayward, that's not some new idea. God's intent all along, even in the choosing of Abraham and the people of Israel, was always to go and bless the nations. You remember? Remember back to Genesis chapter 12. That first promise given to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, he's being selected particularly to be in a relationship with God, but why? We read this in Genesis chapter 12, 3, in you, and then later God will clarify, in your offspring, in you all the families or nations of the earth will be blessed. God's mission has always been global. We hear later, again, this is in the Old Testament in Isaiah, for example, Call invitations to the nations, like Isaiah chapter 45, verse 12. Turn to me, God says, and be saved, who? All the ends of the earth. His arms are out wide because he says, for I am God, there is no other. Or again, Isaiah 45. Again, this is Old Testament, Old Covenant stuff. Israel stuff, but then we hear this. The Lord prophesies about Jesus, this coming servant, and he says in Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God's heart is big. His arms are out wide. He's got a heart for the rebellious nations to save a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, that they're all represented. That's always been his desire. And this shift away from Jerusalem to Galilee is preparing to launch that kingdom to the ends of the earth. But part of getting our minds and then engaging our hearts to this audacious, I mean worldwide commission, it really begins as you start to think about and get a grip on God's heart in it. His compassion for the nations. Do you see God is brimming overflowing with compassion. Or in the words of what we read in Psalm 145, he's abounding in steadfast love. It's not a small thing about how great his love is. I mean, isn't this the good news we teach our children and that we know and we cherish in the gospel? For God so loved the world that he gave his son, he sacrificed his son for the world, that whoever should believe on him from any nation, whoever it may be, they trust in Christ, they will not perish. Isn't that the good news? Isn't that the greatness of our God? Why does God do this? Why does he have a heart for the nations? Because that's who he is. He is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You can't contain that. He's generous with His mercy, not stingy with it. It can't be contained. You can't contain His gospel. The whole point of the gospel, He's overflowing with grace. He's not stingy with His mercy, but then I have to ask, but am I being stingy with it? Are you being stingy with His mercy? He is worthy to be praised beyond the boundaries of Israel, isn't He? Beyond the walls of the temple. Beyond the walls of this church, of Jerusalem, of Richmond, of Midlothian, of China, of Kenya, of Ireland, all the rest. Isn't he worthy as a great redeemer of it all? It's too small a thing for him to be praised just by us in our little church. He's too great. He's too glorious. 
He's an expansive God worthy of worldwide praise. And so then if we are content, if we are comfortable to just hold on to our private salvation, to be content in our holy huddle, our comfortable contentment, then you've missed what salvation is really all about, haven't you? It's not about your contentment and comfort. I mean, again, think of the example that our Savior has given us. He left heaven to come here for you. Salvation is not about finding a safe place for your family and your kids. Salvation is about a compassionate God overflowing with mercy such that He came to save you. Why? Because He's worthy to be worshipped and He loved you. Why? I don't know, but because He's glorious. He's good. And that goodness should be enjoyed all over the world. And this shift to Galilee lets us all know that it's going to the world. So the question is, will we? Where is our heart? Do we share His for the nations? We need to see His desire for the nations. Second, we also need to see and realize the doubt of some of the disciples. This actually is an encouragement to us as we try and fulfill this commission. We see it now in verse 17 of Matthew 28. This is an encouragement because the call of the Great Commission is huge. It's global. It's worldwide. And we discover, though, as we hear that, I already felt it this morning, God, I think you called the wrong guy to this. I can't handle this. And we're going to look at these disciples, and we're going to see they don't seem to be able to handle it either. Because what we find out about these disciples is that they are much like us. They are a mixed bag, a mix of faith and doubt, of boldness and cowardice. Look at this dichotomy here. Look at verse 17 finally. And when they saw him, they worshipped Jesus, but some doubted. First of all, note the right response, seems most of them had. This really astounding response to the resurrected Jesus, which is worship. I say astounding because, again, you have to reckon with who these first disciples were. They were Jews. And what characterized the Jews was their confession of faith that they only worship one God. They were staunch monotheists. They worshiped only Yahweh. Their defining confession called the Shema, taken from Deuteronomy 6, proclaims this distinctive truth. Hear, or Shema in Hebrew, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would not worship anyone else. Worshiping anything, anyone else beside the only true God was reprehensible to them. And that's why, in part, the Jewish leaders had such a hard time with Jesus, don't you see? Because what was Jesus doing? He was doing things that only God can do. He was healing the sick, restoring limbs, forgiving sins, raising the dead. Two, beyond that, he called himself God's son, the great I am. He was Emmanuel, God with us. And Jewish leaders didn't like that. They accused him of blasphemy. There was no way they were about to go bow down to him. Jews never would do that to men. 
And yet, you have these first disciples who, by the way, were all Jewish, doing this very thing, bowing down to a man. But of course, he was no mere man. He was God and man, God in flesh. And as they see him, much like at the transfiguration, remember from Matthew 17, the disciples just can't help themselves. In view of Jesus and his resurrected glory, they can, they, it's reflexive. They just bow down in worship. That's the right response. But it's not the only response, of course, verse 17 again. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, Bible students have puzzled over this contrast, but some doubted. And first questions that arise, well, who was that? Who doubted? Give me some names. I know, it was Thomas, wasn't it? Of course. Or maybe it was Peter. You know, the guys, he went back fishing, probably again. Or quite possibly, could it have been the 500 that were now with the disciples seeing the resurrected Jesus for the first time? Maybe they were the ones who doubted. That doesn't seem inexplicable. Nevertheless, doubts are not necessary. For this is the real, bona fide, back from the dead, alive from the tomb, Jesus, right in flesh before them. Maybe it helps then to understand what does this mean by some doubted, to clarify that this is not the typical word you might think or associate with doubt. That is, this is not the polar opposite of believing. Rather, this word here for doubt describes a hesitancy, describes a, a weakness of faith, a faltering of it. Not, it's not an absence of faith altogether. I think we see this so well if we look back at Matthew chapter 14. You can turn there or just listen. But in Matthew 14, we have an account where these very ideas all come together once again. You've got worship, you've got faith, and you've got doubting. All coming together in one episode. You remember the time, because it stands as one of the most dramatic stories in all of the Gospels. It's that time when not just Jesus walked on water, but Peter did too. Remember that? Peter and the disciples saw Jesus coming to them. They were first afraid. Jesus tells them, do not be afraid. Peter replies, well, if it is you, Lord, I believe it's you. I hear your word. I trust you. If it is you, tell me to come out to you. Jesus says, come on. And this isn't a storm out of a boat getting out onto the lake. Right in the middle somewhere. And sure enough, he trusted it was Christ and he walked on that stormy wave. He walked in faith on the water, but then this happens. Verse 40, or excuse me, verse 30 of chapter 14. But when he saw the wind, when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Can you relate to that? You step out in great faith, and then you get out there, and you're like, what am I doing here? Your immediate circumstances eclipse Jesus from your sight, so to speak. Your faith and focus turns from Christ to all around you in your immediate call or circumstances. His fears overruled his faith in that moment, and so he stumbled. He literally began to sink. 
But even in his peril, when push comes to shove, as failing as Peter might be in his faith, he still has enough of it to know who to call on when he's in real trouble. He cries out, Lord, save me. And I love the next line, verse 31. He cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Jesus didn't wait for Peter to get his faith all together before he saved him. He just snatched him in his peril. What a gracious Christ we have. But as he does save him, Jesus does have a word for Peter. And he says this, the end of verse 31, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And that's the same word doubt that we find in Matthew chapter 28. More, why did you hesitate is the notion of the verb. Why was your trust in me partial, faltering, half-hearted? There's no need to hesitate, Peter. I'm Lord of creation. There's no need to doubt. I had you the whole way, the whole time. And yet, I think this illustrates well, doesn't it? The faith of all believers. We believe, but then our faith at times is rather weak, isn't it? We cry out, I believe, but help my unbelief, O Lord, noticing that in our heart. So back to Matthew 28, just to note, whoever is the ones who are doubting, some of them doubted, whether it's likely some of that great number of disciples who were there seeing the risen Jesus for the first time, or maybe even if it was some of the original 11 who had already seen Jesus, and yet they still doubted, they still wavered, they still hesitated. Either way, you see these disciples, they're a mixed bag of worshipers and doubters, believers and waverers. They can be bold as lions and then also skittish as sheep. These are his followers. And that's true as you look at even us as a whole, at this church, or the Christian church generally. you got some who are bold evangelists. And then you got others, let's say, that are cowardly, scared to open our mouths. But more often, I think, you'll find that that bold evangelist and that cowering Christian can be right inside the same person. You felt that? That the trusting saint can just the very next day be the fretting worrier? We are worshipers. This is who we are. We believe, but then we doubt. We worship Jesus, and then we worship other things. And we're back and forth, back and forth. Can you relate to that kind of faith? To being that kind of disciple? I think so. That's even the testimony of these first disciples who actually got to see the risen Jesus. And it's a testimony to all of us. But why do I belabor this point? Just note this. Jesus didn't wait for everyone to get their doubts answered in faith altogether before he commissioned them to go and tell. He saw their hearts, he saw their joys, he saw their faith, he also saw their doubts and their weaknesses, and he still called them warts and all to go and tell the gospel. He calls sinners to himself who are broken. This is the gospel message. He calls us to find mercy at his feet, at the cross. But then he sends us out, broken and all still, though forgiven, though equipped by the Spirit, but imperfectly following him, and yet we're still called to go and tell. 
as imperfect and vacillating our faith might be. He's not waiting around for us to get our faith all up to speed, perfected and whole, and then we're ready to serve him. No, he sees your weakness and he says, trust me, go forth and tell. To be faithful now to make disciples, not to wait around. So take solace there, brothers and sisters. Your faith is not yet perfect. But Jesus here does not send out perfect preachers. He sends out hesitating, vacillating ones. But there's a challenge in that example too, isn't there? That is this. Just because you've struggled in your faith here and there, that doesn't mean you're off the hook for obeying and taking ownership for this great commission. As we say, don't wait till you're better to come to Christ in the first place. But similarly, don't wait till your faith is all perfect, you've got everything nipped and tucked in your faith and has all the kinks worked out until you can go serve Him and speak of Him. He calls you, make disciples now. We see that in the example of the doubt of some disciples. Finally, too, we turn to it formally, this actual directive from King Jesus. This directive to go and make disciples. Now, there's so much as we look at verses 18 to 20. You have comprehensive statements about Jesus' authority and rule over the world. You have calls to go to mobilize for the nations. you got this word about baptism. You have one of the clearest articulations of the Trinity in here. You have this go obey all that I've commanded. And then you have this astonishing assurance, he says, that I'm with you to the end of the age. There's so much good things here. That's why we're going to have a whole other message on that, right? But if you trim off the fat of it and get to the very heart of what he calls us, there is only one command here. And actually, in the original language, there is only one expressed command, imperative, one directive, and it's this, make disciples. That's what he calls you. There's all these other glorious truths in here, but he gives one command, and he tells you, church, believer, make disciples. There in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. That's the heart of his charge to us. That is, to do our part, to tell, to plead, to encourage, to show, to serve, and to preach that we might make other followers of Jesus. Everything else, all these glorious truths in this text are auxiliary to, a compliment to, a clarification and encouragement for doing that one thing, making disciples. Understand, in these last words, this is why He left you here on the planet, to make disciples. And so we're going to take the remainder of our time this morning and just consider that chief command. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll take all of the surrounding encouragements to us, to it, to help us fulfill that task. But as we look at that command, I want to ask and answer two questions or consider it from two angles. The first question we want to ask about this command, make disciples, is this. If that's our mission, what then is not our mission? And then second, we need to address the question, well, what is a disciple? We need to figure out what we're actually trying to make, right? Well, first, let it be said once more, our mission, the great commission from King Jesus is this, make disciples. In a way, it's that simple. It's that straightforward. It's that clear. 
And that way, the Christian life's not that complicated. What was his last command? Make disciples. And yet, Christians, churches, missions organizations have confused the mission of the church with a whole lot of other mostly good things, but that are not this ultimate thing. Or to say it in another way, if making disciples simply is our mission, there are many other good things out there that are not our mission. That is not the call we've been given from Jesus. So that means our task, our mission, is not to go and dig wells. Our task, our mission, is not to start humanitarian organizations and orphanages. Neither is our task to clean up local schools, nor is it to put Christians in political positions. That is not our task. Nor is our task to merely sing songs, hear sermons, especially all to ourselves, content in our own personal worship and private faith. Our mission is not either to come into this building, close our eyes, and sing out our hearts to God and call it good that we've done what we've been called to do. We haven't. Now, many of those things are good things, worthwhile things, and they might actually aid to accomplish our mission, but they're not our mission. Our mission is make disciples, make followers of Jesus Christ. So you have to ask yourself, how am I doing at the mission? This is our task. And this is our task together. And what I mean by that at this point is just to say, this is not the task for you to make disciples only if you are in Ireland sent out from Grace Bible Church. The task to make disciples isn't only for the pastors and missionaries or elders. This is the task for you if you're a Christian. Make disciples. So how are you doing? Have you taken personal responsibility for this charge from King Jesus? Well, ask these two questions. First of all, are you a gospelizer? Is the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, on your lips often and frequently? For their very beginning of discipling is gospelizing, speaking the good news of Jesus, telling others about his death and their sins, his burial and resurrection. Following Jesus begins there, and it begins with us opening our mouths, telling forth the good news. Are you found speaking those truths from your lips? We cannot make disciples if we keep silent. Are you a gospelizer? But second, are you a discipler? That is, do you lead others, do you help others follow Christ and His Word for their whole life? Part of discipling is helping one another do that, you see. We, we often speak about that as the church's mission to edify the body, edify, build up the church and the faith. Help one another, obey Jesus, live like Jesus, do all that He's commanded us, right? But of course, you know that realize, you realize then that to make a disciple is not a one-time event, but it's a lifelong commitment. In a similar way, it's the difference between if we can put it this way, merely giving birth to a baby, I grant there's nothing mere about it, as huge. But it's the difference between giving birth to a baby and then raising a child, you see. You have not made a disciple if you just bring them to faith or speak the gospel at them. You might make a convert, 
But that baby Christian needs to be discipled, taught more and more about his new master, taught more and more about his master's mercy, taught more and more and shown what it means to live like Jesus. Again, that's our mission. Not just to speak good news or to make converts or to get decisions or make confessions. We make disciples, lifelong followers of Jesus. As an example, here Paul's, I would say, like rearticulation of this mission as he spoke to the Colossians. He said this, this is Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, you know it. Christ we proclaim, Paul writes, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Mature in Christ means to live like Christ, to obey Christ. That's our goal. That's our mission. We go out with the gospel on our lips to bring people to profess faith in Christ and then teach them and train them to live like a disciple of Jesus. Which that brings us to our last question then that we must answer. Well, what are we trying to make? What is a disciple? And briefly, I want to say it's three things. First of all, the word disciple in the Greek has two major overlapping connotations. And first of all, that is the disciple is a learner. A disciple is a learner. It's one who learns from their teacher, their master. We saw this actually at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel when Jesus gave his first extended sermon. Remember this? Of course, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins like this. This is Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Well, what's he going to do for them? What's going to distinguish them as disciples? We go on in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them. To be a disciple of Jesus is that you learn from him, you learn about him, you learn what he did for you, you learn what he's commanded you to do. Practically then, we know that means today, that means you know and study His Word. You come to know Christ, you know what He's like, you become acquainted with all of His character, and that comes as you become acquainted with His Word, the Scriptures. You cannot be a disciple if you will not hear and listen and learn from God's Word. Disciples are learners. Second, the other key aspect of being a disciple This other aspect of the Greek word is this, that you are a follower. You're a learner, but you're also a follower. You don't merely learn from your teacher. You obey your teacher. You change your life to match his example and his teachings. You put his teachings into practice. And again, Jesus so masterfully draws this out at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember this? He tells this story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about these two builders. He had a wise builder and a foolish one. The wise guy built his house on the rock. The fool built his house on sand. One stood, one perished, of course. But what distinguished them? Because that was an analogy. Well, the wise man, like the fool, heard the words of Christ, but then what distinguished him from the fool was not that he only heard it, but he did what Jesus said. And Jesus said this about the fool. This is Matthew 7, verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Who, by the way, his house was destroyed. 
You can't just learn about Jesus and be his disciple. Memorize his teachings, write his words on your backpacks, or decorate your social media bios with Jesus' words. The question is, do you do what he says? That's a disciple. If I could add one more essential aspect of a true disciple, it's this. He or she is, yes, a learner, a follower, but from the context of Matthew, would also say that he is a member, a learner, a follower, and a member. Now, let me clarify. I don't mean one must be a formal member in a local church to go to heaven or to be a true disciple of Jesus. But what I do mean is this, is that there is no going solo in the Christian life. Jesus calls these disciples and assembles them in local churches, congregations. Again, recall in Matthew this glorious word he has about the church. This is Matthew 16, verse 18. After Peter makes the good confession, Jesus assures him and says, On this rock, the rock of our common confession and faith in Christ, I will build my church. Remember, church is just means just assembly. It's just a congregation of people. In this case, it's a congregation of those who profess faith in Jesus. But that means as you're following behind Jesus, you're listening to his teachings, and you're trying to obey them, you can never do that by yourself. You're following with a whole host of others, a congregation, a church, where we hear about in the New Testament often, you are then members of one another, Right? In a way then, what's our target? What kind of disciples are we trying to make? Trying to make learners, followers, and members. Members and partners of our common faith and life in Christ to obey Him. That we could together make disciples. And how do we do that? If I could reprise what Paul had said to the Colossians, we proclaim Christ. We do that at every part of our mission. We do that in the beginning. To those that don't know Him, we proclaim Christ. But then Paul writes, that's how also we become mature, isn't it? We proclaim Christ. We proclaim the good news to one another. We might faithfully obey Him, love Him, and follow Him. And that's what we do every first of the month as we come to this table, isn't it? We proclaim Christ. Paul even says it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six: As often as you all eat this bread and you all drink the cup, you all together proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. For it's Christ and His cross that has made us disciples, and it's that cross that keeps us to God and disciples. So we must never leave off remembering the cross and proclaiming that cross together. That's the only way we can be His disciples. So let us do that now as we come to this table.